Job 32. We're actually closer to the end of this book than I'd like to be. Um, We have maybe three more Wednesdays, uh, maybe four. But uh, though we're in chapter 32 and it runs all the way, you know, up to chapter 42, those ten will go by quickly. I always hate that when a book ends. I have this. It's just me, I'm sure, but I have this kind of feeling of, oh, like you're leaving a good friend. But the next friend we're going to have some time with is the book of Psalms. And we'll enter into a season, I believe, of worship and learning how to worship even more so than perhaps we understand now or I understand now. So I'm looking forward to that. But tonight we're in Job 32 and we have a shift, a change has taken place now, a kind of a changing of the guard. If you look at the end of chapter 31, it tells us the words of Job are ended. (laughs) 31 chapters, actually 29, of dialoguing back and forth between Job and his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. first couple of chapters are are prose. They're, They're telling us what has taken place. The beginning of chapter 32 gives us a few more verses of of explanation of where we are and what's happening. And then we're back into some more dialogue, but with a new character. Suddenly, a new personality. Now, if you were an author and you were writing out a story, this would be a very odd time to add a new character. When When you're barreling down toward the end, when everything's been said that, well, could be said or should be said, suddenly now we have a new player. A man enters the mix, an enigmatic player named Elihu. I call him the enigmatic Elihu because he's mysterious. No one knows where he came from. No one knows where he goes when he's done speaking. In fact, he'll finish speaking and that'll be it for Elihu. He won't be mentioned again in the book. He gets six chapters. Now, the Lord got two chapters to create the entire world. Elihu gets to speak for six. So he's got something to say. And if you've read ahead at all, if you've looked into this man, Elihu, you may have some, some questions. He is a little confusing at times um, as to what he's getting at. But he's been called, aside from Job himself, the most interesting, complex, and fully realized character in the book of Job. And again, coming along at the end, there's a reason for that. Because suddenly he shows up now. But you're going to have to wait until Sunday to find out what that reason is. But this interesting, complex character, Elihu, he's far from perfect. So let's get that straight right out the gate. He doesn't say everything exactly right, although he's far better than the previous four conversers. And what he has to say is far more on target, but he's not perfect. He even says of himself in chapter 33, verse 6, he says, I too have been formed out of the clay. You know, he accepts his humanity. He realizes he's like the rest of us, somewhat messy. And you're going to find over six chapters, Elihu is long-winded. He is youthfully arrogant. He borders on arrogance. You're not quite sure. Boy, that sounds kind of like an arrogant statement, Elihu. Maybe he's just incredibly confident. But he walks that line very uh, dangerously, I think, and he misquotes and misrepresents Job a couple of times. That's perhaps the worst thing that he does, is this misrepresentation of Job. I don't think it's intentional, but Elihu has been listening now across these weeks, perhaps months, that this conversation and this dialogue has been going back and forth. And he's been listening to what's been said, and like a lot of us, he's heard some things, 
and he's made some assumptions, and when he repeats them, they're not always accurate, and that's something we can learn from. Be careful what you repeat. Well, so-and-so said this. Did you hear them say this, or did you hear from someone else that they said this? That's a little bit of a problem for Elihu. However, this young man is remarkably right in much of what he says. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 37, we won't tonight, but in chapter 37, we will read one of the most powerful chapters in the entire book of Job. In fact, it, it parallels the chapters 38 on through 41 as God is speaking. It really is a perfect run-up to the Lord speaking Himself. And it's amazing that when the Lord finally rebukes the three friends of Job and, and comes at Job himself and, and rebukes Job, when you get down to the, to the end of the book, Elihu is not mentioned. He's not rebuked. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, you were wrong in the way you spoke of my servant Job, the Lord will say. Not Elihu. That should tell us something that, that at least, even for some overconfidence, even for some misquotations, Elihu gets it right. I like that about him. Now, why isn't Elihu rebuked? Why the rest of them, and if Elihu does misquote Job, and Elihu does make some mistakes, why is this man not rebuked? Well, some think he may have been the inspired writer of this book, and therefore leaves his own name out. You know, And I think it's entirely likely, I'll give you a couple more reasons as we go tonight, why Elihu is the likely writer of the book of Job. If not Job himself, possibly this man Elihu. Others think that it's because Elihu's words, though dogmatic, ring so true. That again, the Lord says, I have no rebuke for this young man. Some scholars think, and I almost wasn't going to share this, but just you know, in the interest of truth, there are scholars out there who think Elihu's words, these six chapters, were inserted later and really don't belong in the book of Job at all. Let me tell you my opinion. I call that the critical cop-out. Because I often find the higher critics or the more liberal scholars out there especially, when they don't understand a passage or when it doesn't make complete sense or when it's difficult to understand how it fits or why it is where it is, they often say, ah, well, maybe it's not supposed to be there at all. It's a critical cop-out. When a critic can't tie a person up in a neat and tidy box of explanation, oftentimes they will just disregard that character or that passage or that writing altogether, and it's pretty pathetic. Reality is, if we don't understand it, it doesn't mean it doesn't belong there. It means we don't understand it. And perhaps we need to take the time necessary to understand why the Lord has chosen to bring us His Word as He has brought it to us. I like Elihu because the truth is, real people don't fit into neat and tidy boxes. None of us do. There are some of you I know very well, and yet you still surprise me. Some of you know me very well, and yet I still will do things that you don't expect, things that, that, that would be shocking or upsetting or disappointing. Hey, we are messy humanity. Elihu is, is perfect because he fits that bill. He speaks by the Spirit, and yet on occasion he's wrong. He's unlike the other three, the friends of Job, who are pretty much wrong all the time. But here's this unique, again, enigmatic character. And it reminds me that a person can soar to the heights of the Holy Spirit with the Spirit as their guide, speaking with words of the Holy Spirit one moment, 
and in the very next readily sink into carnality and sin and failure. And people have been blown away. Let me encourage you in your walk with Christ, whether here at the bridge, if a Christian leader ever disappoints you, man, be ready for that. It's going to happen. Don't let that determine or deter your faith. Your faith is in Jesus Christ, who is perfect. Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not Rick, who's going to mess it up. I'm going to try not to. But I will. Other Christian leaders will. Some of you will be taken to other churches. Tragically, I fear some will be in a church where there will be a horrible pastoral fall. As we often read about in the news, comes up, the media loves to jump on those stories. And sadly, people will see this happen. We'll see a man, a woman, a person of faith they admire. They'll see a terrible fall and they'll just say, well, if that's Christianity, I don't want anything to do with it. Well, that's not Christianity. Well, okay, that's Christianity, but that's not Christ. (laughs) We all fall. We all sin. We all come up short of God's glory. That's why we need grace. So we have this messy Elihu. Peter was like that, by the way. Peter was messy. In the same chapter, Matthew 16.23, Peter has, has just proclaimed, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is the great proclamation of faith. Jesus, you're Him. You're Mashiach. You're the Messiah that was long promised. And it's only seven verses later that Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. How's that possible? In one moment, Peter is speaking inspired by God. Jesus said, you didn't come up with those words, Peter. My Father in Heaven told you that I was the Christ, and you just said what you heard. How can a man be at that height of faith and spiritual expression, and then at the next moment have Jesus say, get behind me, Satan? Well, it's because he's human. It's because we all are. Some might read Matthew 16.23 and say, wow, if Peter gets it that wrong, maybe we ought to just throw out First and Second Peter as books in the Bible. <laughs> this guy is such a loser. If he can't hold it together for seven verses, why don't we just get rid of that? Or maybe we could instead recognize that our perfect God has chosen to bend to imperfect humanity. To use us, to speak through us, to declare His Word, in spite of our ability to fail. Boy, I am so thankful that God has chosen imperfect humanity to declare God's work because if not, we'd be in trouble. We'd be done before we started tonight because we're all imperfect. Now, for all of that, Elihu's occasional imperfections, he holds a very unique place in the book of Job. Let's, let's get on the wall here, listen in, watch what happens. Chapter 32, verse 1. After the words of Job are ended in chapter 31, 32, Then these three men, his three friends, ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Job's problem wasn't sin. It was perspective. He was righteous in his own eyes. He couldn't see beyond his innocence in the current situation. And because he couldn't see that there was something else going on, there was no alternative for Job except to play the victim. I'm right in this, he says. And we've seen this throughout the entire book so far. I did nothing to deserve what's happening to me right now. And his three friends, well, they failed to answer this. They failed to give any kind of explanation 
that would help Job get a greater perspective than his own proclaimed innocence. It wasn't sin. It was perspective. And part of the reason why Elihu is so valuable is he begins to turn Job's perspective even before the Lord speaks. Verse 2. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Budzite of the family of Ram, burned. Against Job, his anger burned because he justified himself before God. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. Right there in these first few verses we get three interesting notes to understand about Elihu. Three... um, perspectives of of his character. Number one, we'll get his pedigree. Secondly, we get his personality. And thirdly, we get his purpose. His pedigree. He's the son of Baruch El. Baruch El, the Budzite. Baruch El, that's blessed of God. It's interesting. John just said this the other day. He said, boy, you know, the more you study the Bible and you hear Hebrew words, the more you find yourself able to pick out what Hebrew words mean. You hear the word Baruch. Well, that means blessed, not Barak. Baruch means blessed. Baruch El. El meaning God, so blessed of God. Well, he's the son of this Baruch El, the Budzite. Not the Buzzite, the Budzite is how you would say that. And this gives us an interesting clue as to the timing of Job, which we talked about and I shared with you, I believe, was 4,000 years ago. I believe Job was a contemporary of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Probably of Isaac or Jacob in that time period. What would make you say that? Well, Genesis chapter 22, verse 20, tells us after, it came about after these things, and this was after uh, Abraham took Isaac up on the up Mount Moriah to uh, offer him as a sacrifice. After these things, and he didn't sacrifice Isaac, you Bible students, you know that. It was after this, it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uds, his firstborn, and Buds, Buzz, his brothers. First uh, mention of Buzz Lightyear in the Bible. Booz his firstborn, and Buzz Booz his brother, and Kenuel the father of Aram. Now we read, and this little genealogy is inserted in Genesis 22. And the genealogy here is is that of Abraham's brothers' kids. Who cares? Well, there are two reasons why we should care. First of all. We're going to see, or you would see if you were reading on through Genesis 22, that there's a daughter born of that same lineage whose name is Rebekah. And that's the introduction of Rebekah, who Isaac ultimately will marry. But it's also interesting, these names, Uds and Buds, because here we find that Elihu is in that line, which would trace Elihu to the time of the patriarchs. As a matter of fact, you might also remember that what was the land called where Job resided? It was the land of Uz or Uz. And that is one of the sons here. And so we've got this family line all mentioned together. And the pedigree of Elihu is specifically given to us. I, I think partially for that reason. So we could get an idea of when this all really was taking place. God doesn't miss a trick. So Elihu is a member of the Buds family. Job's country is in the land of Uds, Job chapter 1, verse 1. And this is interesting because we don't get a pedigree like that even for Job. We don't for Eliphaz or Bildad or Zophar. We get some idea of where they're from, but we get nothing of family lineage. 
And yet, along comes Elihu and we get a lot. That's another reason, by the way, some believe, and I would agree, that he's probably the writer. He's giving a little extra information about himself. Second thing we note here is his personality. He is full of youthful passion. Three times in four verses we're told his anger burned. His anger burned against Job because he was self-justifying. Before God, it was all about his own justification. Against Job's friends because they condemned Job without cause. I just realized this thing isn't even turned on. Now it is. (laughs) He he burns in anger against Job. He burns in anger against the three friends because they condemned Job again without cause. And thirdly, he burns in anger against their friends because they failed to come up with an answer. And this is interesting because it shows us this guy is, I mean, he's, he's hot under the collar. Now he's been patient, but he's just riled up. In a moment he's going to describe himself literally as a cork about ready to pop. He's so angry. And there is something of this passion in the man, Elihu. Pedigree, personality, number three, his purpose. And this is most important. Elihu's purpose This is not the purpose I'm going to tell you on Sunday. That's another one. But his purpose here is to declare God. To declare God. Job's been defending himself. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have been defending their religion, their faith, their perspective. Elihu's the first person to come along in this book and say, I want to talk to you about God. I want to offer a defense of Him. Job, you're out there justifying yourself. Job, your, your friends, they're justifying themselves. Who? Who's speaking and declaring God? Elihu's purpose, by the way, is found in his name. Elihu literally means he is God. He is God. Or my God is he. His own name is a declaration of what the Lord says. Isaiah 45, verse 5, I am the Lord, there is no other, and beside me there is no other God. It's that famous statement, there is one God and you're not Him. And this is the declaration of Elihu. He is God. He is God. And this frames Elihu's entire defense. Before we get started, understand that's his purpose. That's why he speaks up. Because no one else is saying he's God. And before we try to explain or understand anything, that's the place we need to start. He's God. Even that sometimes just silences us. Oh, that's right, He is. (laughs) So He can do whatever He wants. He is God. Verse 6 going on. So Elihu, the son of Barukel, the Bootsite, spoke out, and he said, I am young in years and you are old. Therefore I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak and increased years should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in man. And the breath or literally spirit of the Almighty gives them understanding. The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. So I say, listen to me, and I too will tell you what I think. Behold, I waited for your words, I listened to your reasonings, while you pondered what to say. I even paid close attention to you. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job, not one of you who answered his words. And Elihu is right. Elihu now speaks to his elders and he says, Dudes, you never answered the questions. You didn't give any good answer. 
We, we hear his frustration emerging here because these are four older men and younger Elihu says, man, they should know better by now. I thought with age came wisdom. I, I thought that that's how you, you get smarter as you get older. And yet these four guys are speaking like four old fools. What is the difference between a foolish old man and a faithful old man. See, because that's what I want to be. I, I had some conversation with the Lord about this this week. I said, Lord, I don't want to be an old fool. I don't mind being old faithful. However that works. A faithful old man. I don't mind being, I want to be, in my older years, wiser than I was in my younger years. Not more foolish. And I, I, I can tell you all about it because you're here tonight. But I see this all the time. Older gentlemen, older ladies who check out, who would rather spend their time watching sports in the evening than being in the Word of God. And I don't understand. People who even maybe were faithful young in their life, involved, active in their church, but they get to a certain point and just say, you know, it's time to retire. It's time to step back from this. You know, I I look at Russ Pettis <laughs> I say this because Kathy's here. I look at Russ and I think, okay, when are you going to stop adopting children, Russ? Because, you know, how long can we do this? He's going to be 68 years old when his youngest graduates high school. And I think, God bless Russ. Good for him. Because at least until that point, he's going to have to stay on his toes. How do you determine what is the difference between a faithful old man and a foolish old man? And I think it's two very simple things. Two ways to avoid being an old fool. Number one, be wise in the Word. Here's your wisdom. Be wise in it. Spend your time in the Scriptures. Pour over it. I met a man years ago. I was a kid. I don't even remember his name. But I remember going with my parents over to his house. Went into his study. And he had paperback Bibles lining his shelves. It was the same exact paperback Bible. And I looked up there and I saw those Bibles. What's the point of this? What's going on here? Why all these paperbacks? What he had done is every time he finished going through one, marking it up, studying it down, he put it on the shelf and he got a fresh one. And started over. And I, I kid you not, there were dozens. And this was a man who was wise in the Word. Be wise in the Word and be seasoned by the Spirit. Because you can become a foolish old man if you shut off the Holy Spirit and only pay attention to the Word. You'll become a legalist. That's the problem, again, of Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. These guys are older guys. They knew what they believed. They had their words down, but they had no Spirit. They weren't seasoned by the Spirit. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 2, or, sorry, 2, 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Be seasoned by the Spirit. 1 Peter 4.11 says, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. In other words, be confident in the Word. Be confident in the Spirit. Don't be an Eliphaz, a Bildad, a Zophar. I mean, here's the deal. with The confidence we have is in the Lord and in His truth. It is not in your religious position. 
Our confidence is not in ourselves. It's in the Lord. And it's in His truth, in His Spirit, and in His Word. And if our confidence is there, we have nothing to be afraid of. In fact, we, like Elihu, can speak with great confidence. Now, we don't want to be arrogant about it. And I think the Holy Spirit will tap that down in us. But Elihu, even though he's young, he claims the seasoning of the Spirit there in verse 8. It is a spirit in man... And the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. And that word spirit and breath in the Hebrew, ruach, you may have heard before, same word. And so this just as easily reads, it's a spirit in man and the spirit of the Almighty gives him understanding. And Elihu is different. His talking is different. His attitude, what he shares, and he opens up a whole new perspective nobody else has. But he is doing it by, I believe, by the Holy Spirit. He's the only one in the book who claims to speak by the Ruach, the Spirit of God. Eliphaz speaks from religion. Bildad speaks from tradition. So far, well, he was speaking from legalism. But Elihu speaks from revelation. He speaks by the Spirit. And we're going to see this several times and watch because there is much of the Spirit in Elihu's words. Now he goes on to charge Job's friends with two big problems in their lives or in their conversation, their dialogue. Verse 13, he says, Do not say we have found wisdom. God will rout him, not man. What do you mean? He says, Don't say that. Don't sink back into your piety, which is what they had done. Don't sink back into piety. He says, You guys, you're saying that we understand. We have the answer. We have our religion. God's going to take care of Job. Now, please understand this. I think it's really significant for us. Sometimes it's easier to settle into our comfortable religious rhetoric than it is to deal with a friend who is drowning in doubt. Sometimes when we're in conversation and, and, and their questions are just, oh, they're rattling us, it's easy just to slip back into religion Stay comfortable in what we think is the truth and say, well, you know, God's going to have to deal with them because I can't. That's what these guys were doing. That's what they came to. They finally shut up and said, well, he's God's problem because we obviously can't be wrong. They sank back into their piety. Don't do it. Don't say, let the Lord deal with that person. No. You deal with them. You go to them by the Spirit. And if the questions are hard, if it's confusing even you, go back to the Word. Spend more time in prayer. Wrestle through it with your friend to seek the understanding that God can bring. Don't just seek, sink back into religion. Hebrews 10.39, one of my favorite verses, We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And not just your soul, not just my soul. We have a faith that says, Go forward that you might preserve somebody else's soul as well. Have faith that you are standing in and on the truth. So, so Rick, are you saying we're supposed to go on the offensive with the Gospel? Absolutely. Far better we be on the offensive with the gospel truth of Jesus Christ than on the defensive, slipping back into our safety, our comfort zones. We don't have to defend the truth. We just have to know it and be confident in it. They sank back into their piety. That's what Elihu is indicating there. Verse 14, he goes on and says, For he has not arranged his words against me, 
Nor will I reply to him with your arguments. Second thing they did is they took Job's questions personally. You remember this? There are a couple of times where Job even himself said, this is not between you and me. Why are you jumping on my case? I, I'm not, I don't have a problem with you. This is between me and the Lord. Why are you coming after me like that? It's because they took it personally. Because what Job was saying rattled their religion. And they didn't like it. And so it became this personal battle to prove who was right and who was wrong. And Elihu says, hey, it's not my issue. The problem isn't between you and me, Job. It's not about me. It's about someone far greater than either one of us. It's about Him. He is God. This is where our conversation needs to be. If you ever find yourself in a religious conversation with someone and it starts to get heated, I know that's never happened with any of you, but you start to get frustrated, would you pause for a moment and remember this? Oh yeah, it's not personal. It's it's not about me. It's about Him. And so all I need to do is talk about Him. I don't have to worry about defending my faith, my religion, my belief system. Don't take it personally. Elihu comes along. And he begins to speak as as one who just wants to talk about God. And by the way, it works. It works. Job listens. Getting ahead of myself. Verse 15, he says, thinking to himself, They're dismayed. They no longer answer. Words have failed them. Shall I wait because they do not speak? Because they stop and no longer answer? I too will share my opinion. I also will tell my I too will answer my share. I will also answer my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Now those few verses right there, 15, 16, 17, 18. Those are another reason why people think that Elihu wrote the book. Because he's talking in the first person. And he's thinking in the first person. And so he's jotting down for us what was on his mind. Not what he was saying to them, but what he's saying to himself. And so another interesting indication that perhaps Elihu wrote this. And he says in verse 19, and I like this, Behold, my belly is like unvented wine. (laughs) I, I get this. I understand. Like a bottle of wine that has just been sitting there and not, you know, not able to be opened up. But when it finally is, you know... This is how Elihu feels. Unvented wine, he says. Like new wineskins, it is about to burst. Let me speak that I may get relief. (laughs) Let me open my lips and answer, he says. I'm like a cork about to pop. I've been waiting and listening and... And he needs some relief. This is part of the reason that Elihu begins to speak. But there's one reason specifically that he gives as to why he hasn't spoken yet, other than they're older, so he thought he'd give them the opportunity. One thing that kept this man, who, like a a cork, was ready to pop, one thing that kept him from exploding, uh, jumping into the conversation early on. Listen again to what he said, verse 18. The spirit within me constrains me. We can learn from that. The Spirit constrains me. Before Jesus poured out His Holy Spirit in these last days, God would give and remove His Spirit at will. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, we see this happening. He gave it to Saul. He removed His Spirit from Saul and put His Spirit on David. 
And there had not been a time before that day of Pentecost, there was no time where God, blanket, poured out His Spirit on a believing people. As He promised to do and has done with the church. And it's marvelous. I mean, praise God, we walk with the outpouring of His Spirit in a way that no people ever have before. But it is the Spirit who constrains. The Spirit who keeps us from saying what we probably ought not to say too quickly. Now you, he's not talking, I don't believe, about his own spirit. The spirit within me constrains me because he's making a contrast. He says, I'm full of words. <laughs> Boy, if it's up to me, I'm ready to go. I want to talk. But the spirit in me is holding me back, has been holding me back. Let me just ask you, how many of you tend to blurt out when you probably should bottle it up? Have you ever been there where you kind of, blah, you say it and, and oh, words are coming out of my mouth. You know, It's too late, I can't get them back. You get into an argument, you, you have a conflict because you said something. And, later you look back and go, why did I say that? Listen, the Spirit constrains us and it's a good constraint. We need to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit saying, ah, hold that thought. You don't have to speak it yet. This is the key to the constraint of the Spirit in Elihu this far. 2 Corinthians 5.14 The love of Christ constraineth us. That's the King James Version. The love of Christ controls us. New American Standard speaks. that The love of Christ compels us. New International Version says that. Well, which one is it? It's all three. The word means to constrain, to control, to compel, to control us, to literally... Uh, Help us to function. That's what the love of Christ does in us. A life constrained by God's love, by Christ's love for another person will help us be less often blurters and more often quiet and measured in what we say. And that's, I think, the call of the Spirit on our lives to learn to speak from love rather than from defensiveness or, or even offensiveness. Speaking out of love. Elihu is a picture of this. He's constrained by the Spirit. And he comes closer than anyone of truly speaking out of love for Job. He goes on and he says, Let me speak, verse 20, that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. Let me now be partial to no one, nor flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter, else my Maker would soon take me away. What's he saying? He's saying, I, I, I'm going to approach this with impartiality. I'm not going to bag on you, Job. I'm not going to go out here. I'm, just going to, I'm going to try and be impartial and just give you what I believe is the truth here. Does he succeed? Not exactly, but he tries. So it's a good try for Elihu. Now, you might ask the question, why, why do you say, Rick, that Elihu comes closer to speaking out of love for Job than anybody else? Elihu is the only man in this book who speaks Job's name. I, I didn't see that before. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, not once do Job's three friends, so-called, not once do they call him by name. Not once in speaking do they say, Job, listen, Job, buddy, let, let me share with They don't. They're always talking around Job. Almost as if many times he's not there. Saying things that are unbelievably harsh as we've seen. 
as if Job is not really sitting there and they're talking about him, but they never go to Job. In the same way those three guys, they talk about God, they never go to God. Elihu comes along and he says in verse 1 of chapter 33, However now, Job, please hear my speech. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to try and be impartial. I feel like I'm going to burst, but I want to share something with you I think we're missing here. Please hear my speech, Job. Elihu is going to use Job's name three different times, just speaking directly to him. Listen to all my words, he says. Verse 2, Behold, now I open my mouth. My tongue in my mouth speaks. My words are from the uprightness of my heart. Here's that overconfidence, bordering arrogance. My words are from the uprightness of my heart, and my lips speak knowledge sincerely. I'm just telling you what I know to be true. I'm confident in this, he says to Job. Verse 4. Well, hang on, before we get to verse 4. I love the fact that he speaks Job's name. He just says Job. And there's something for us to learn in this as well. Elihu is about to take up the case for God. And in doing it, rather than speaking around Job and throwing out religious epithets, he literally says, Job, let's let's you and I talk. I want to speak to your heart. And I think we need to learn that in how we evangelize, in how we share the gospel with people. We need to get more personal. Rather than taking a non-believer's doubts or questions, rather than taking that personally, we need to take their salvation personally. We need to, like Elihu, look people in the eye and speak their name. What do you mean, speak their name? I mean, speak to them personally. Rather than thinking of evangelism as some kind of door-knocking sales technique. No, evangelism is, is rescue. Evangelism is sharing Jesus with someone out of a true and real concern that they will be saved. That you truly love them enough to say, I I recognize right now that if Jesus were to come, this friend of mine, this family member of mine, is not going to go to heaven. And I love them too much just to let that go. And so, Job, I want to talk to you. Jim, I want to share with you. John, let's have conversation. Speaking the name, taking their salvation personally out of a genuine concern for them. Remember, For God so loved the world. It wasn't for God so wanted to conscript the world to His way of thinking. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. And for us, evangelism, I almost wish we didn't even have the word. Sharing Jesus is about loving someone enough to share Jesus with them. And Elihu is genuinely interested in Job. I'm convinced of it. Calling him by name. John chapter 10 verse 2. Jesus is speaking. He says, He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. And to him the doorkeeper opens. And the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name. And leads them out. Now Jesus is talking about himself as the great shepherd. But guess what? Anytime you lead someone to Christ Jesus, you are functioning as, a, as an under-shepherd. As a shepherd under the great shepherd of Jesus. And the best way to lead someone to Christ as a shepherd leading a sheep is to call them by name. To lead them personally. To lead them because you care about them. Call people to Jesus by name. Well, continuing on now, verse 4. Elihu says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath, the Spirit of the Almighty, gives me life. Refute me if you can. 
Array yourselves before me. Take your stand. Behold, I belong to God like you. I, I too have been formed out of the clay. And behold, no fear of me should terrify you, nor should my pressure or my hand weigh heavily on you. He's saying, I'm not going to be heavy-handed here. What he's expressing is this desire not to get into a big debate or argument like the other guys have, but just to share some truth. He says, verse 8, Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words. Elihu, he goes about describing God now. And he's going to do it through chapter 33 and 34. We won't get to 34 probably tonight. But in chapter 33, he describes God in a number of ways. And the very first way, he says in verse 4, The Spirit of God has made me. Note this, God is Creator. Now remember, Elihu's name, Elihu's purpose. He is God. So let's lay the foundation. God made me. He is Creator. I just saw in the news literally an hour and a half ago that there's a, a father in Tennessee who is going up against a school board and saying, look, there's a book you've got here for, for uh, a biology book. And he said it's offensive to me as a Christian and, and I think it's misleading to children who are Christians and, and it refers to the biblical creation myth. That's the actual quote from the book. Saying, no, no, it's this this evolution, blah, 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 blah. The biblical creation myth is the phrase used. How do you think the world, or, or at least our culture, our country, would respond if a textbook came out that said the evolutionary myth? People would go berserk. And here we are taking what, what we know to be the foundation of truth itself. God is creator. And I'm telling you, gang, it is a sign of the times of the end that people are moving further and further and further away from the truth that He is creator. That God made me. God made you. God created all the world around us. He is creator. And once we leave that foundational truth, man, rebellion comes on like a flood. He is creator. Also this week, the UK Telegraph reports the missing link has been found. I'm so glad because we've been looking for so long. You know? (laughs) The skeleton was found by Professor Lee Berger from the University of Watersrand while exploring cave system in the Sturkfontein region of South Africa near Johannesburg, an area called the Cradle of Humanity. That's ironic. The Cradle of Humanity implies birth and implies creation, (laughs) but they're finding the missing link there. The find is deemed to be so significant that Jacob Zuma, the South African president, has visited the university to view the fossils, and a major media campaign with television documentaries is planned, and this is supposed to be revealed in full tomorrow. So keep your eyes open for the missing link. And if it's a picture of me, please don't tell me. Around 2.5 million years ago, it says, Homo habilius, the first species to be described as distinctly human, began to appear. Although only a handful of specimens have ever been found, it's thought that the new fossil to be unveiled this week will be identified as a new species that fits somewhere between Australopithecus and Homo habilius, the missing link. Duh! Like you said, David, I just get kind of tired of hearing it. Oh, it's the new missing link. No, you're the missing link. <laughs> what I would think. Darwin himself made this comment. He said, light will be thrown on the origin of man and his history. And Mr. Darwin, you're absolutely right. Light will be thrown on the truth of our origin. The fact that we are a created people. 
Want to know the real problem, by the way, with evolutionary theory? Here it is. It's creature-centered rather than creator-centered. It is focused all on the creature and our origin rather than on the creator who gave us our origin. What does the Bible teach? Romans 1.20 For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, God our Creator, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. Why is evolution so pushed today? Because if we can get away from believing in a creation, then we don't have to look at what has been made. And if we don't look at what has been made, we don't have to recognize there's a God. It gives us an excuse to turn our focus off of the truth of God, our Creator. Paul says in Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I'm just going to throw this in there. I was watching Nickelodeon, Nick Jr. with my kids this afternoon and I had to turn it off. I was ticked off because they're talking about Earth Week. And you can hug a tree! And I was like, ah, ah! The elevation of the created things rather than the Creator. My poor kids. They have to deal with me going off on this stuff all the time. They got most of this sermon this afternoon. <laughs> Colossians 1.16 tells us, By Jesus all things were created, both in heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through Him and for Him, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is Creator. I was made by Him. The Spirit of God has made me, says our friend Elihu. And he says in verse 8, continuing on, he says, Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words. Now he's going to quote Job. Okay? I am pure, verse 9, without transgression. I am innocent. And there is no guilt in me. Behold, He invents pretexts against me. He counts me as His enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my path. This is what Elihu is saying that Job said. And here's the first time he misquotes Job. Because if you track this and you go back to where this was said in the book of Job, it wasn't said by Job. It was said by Zophar. Zophar said Job said this. And now Elihu comes along and he quotes what he heard that Job had said, but Job didn't say it. Zophar said Job said it. And that's called bearing false witness. It doesn't have to be on purpose. But we bear false witness. Anytime we say someone said something that we didn't hear them say, we just heard it from someone else. Well, person A said person B said this. Let me just encourage you, if you haven't heard it from person B themselves, you don't really know what they said. That's the problem with gossip. Yeah, but I heard she said this. Did you hear it from her? Well, no, but I'm sure she did. Okay, whatever. Why don't you go ask her and get the truth straightforward? Well, Elihu does misquote Job. Job never says, not one time, Job never says he's innocent. He says he's righteous. Well, what's the difference? Job said, in this situation for which I'm feeling such a a heavy hand of punishment, the loss of all these things in my life, in this situation, I didn't do anything to deserve this. I'm innocent of this. And, And he was. He hadn't done anything to bring that on himself. 
But Job never said he was innocent of sin. He never said he was sinless. In fact, a couple of times Job says, I'm a sinner. I know I've done wrong. I know I've, I've failed in the past. But in this situation, I was not wrong. I was, I'm righteous. And again, that was Job's problem back at the beginning of chapter 32. He was righteous in his own eyes. Yes, he was right. No, he hadn't done anything wrong to bring all this on himself. But Job wasn't saying that he was completely innocent of sin, a perfect man. He never said that. Zophar said that. And so Elihu quotes that, unfortunately. Now you might say, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. So if Elihu is now saying, misquoting, but Elihu has the Spirit of God, um, is that possible? I mean, can a a man have the Spirit of God and speak wrongly? (laughs) You better believe he can. Oh, you can have the Spirit of God, but remember, you're still in your carnal flesh. And until we either die or are called home by Jesus Himself, we're in the flesh. So though you may be filled with the Holy Spirit, there is always the potential for carnality. There is always the potential for speaking wrong, for gossiping, for misquoting, for misrepresenting, for bearing false witness. Sure you can. But, but He seems so godly. But, but she seems so spirit-led. Be careful. Be careful. Don't make the mistake of assuming that because someone is so filled with the Holy Spirit, and I'll say that, I've said this before, because Les is a good example for me to use. Don't look at Les and say, well, he's just such a spirit-filled man, I can't believe he'd say the wrong thing. Yes, he can. I'm not saying I've heard him say the wrong thing, but he can. I know he can. Why? Because he's human like me. Oh, but I've, I've heard, Pat, I, I've... I shared this today with Jeff, and I don't think I've told you all this before, but I, I thought it was really funny. A um, year and a half ago, two years ago, in a, in a ladies' Bible study, they were going around asking who, um, who would you, of all people, most want to have lunch with. And one person, I won't say who she was, but one person said, oh, I, I, Pastor Rick. And word got back to me. So Cheryl and I went out to lunch with her and her husband. And I, when I heard that, I laughed. The person you'd most like to have lunch with. Pastor Rick. What a crack up. You have no idea what you're saying. Really? Okay, so for an hour I've got to try to not be a dork while I have lunch with her so that I can bear up this image that she had of me. You know, it's it's easy. You come, we sit down together, and if you don't spend time with me personally, it's real easy to say, oh yeah, but he speaks the Word of God. Yeah, because I have the Word of God open in front of me. But I don't always speak the Word of God at home. Do I have the Spirit of the living Christ in me? You bet I do. Absolutely. But I don't always speak by the Holy Spirit. To my family, to my friends. I get it wrong a lot. We all do. We're capable of this. Elihu is as well. He misquotes Job. And I've used this verse so many times. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything. Hold fast to what's good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now you might say, "Ah, I know, you you quote that all the time. I do because it's one of my greatest concerns for Christians today. We are far too willing to be feelings-based in our faith and forget to examine the legitimacy of what we're hearing. There's a lot of illegitimate stuff being said and done in the name of Jesus, in the name of the church. Examine everything carefully. Yes, a person can be filled with the Holy Spirit and completely misspeak. Elihu 
having been said to be constrained by the Spirit is still wrong, and we just need to recognize that. Now, thankfully, he immediately turns around and says something right. Verse 12. He says, Behold, let me tell you, Job, you're not right in this. Whether Job said that or not, and we know he didn't, you're not right in this, but here's the right statement Elihu makes. God is greater than man. That's the second thing to know. Very simply, God is creator and God is greater. God is greater. God is greater. Verse 13, why do you complain against Him? That He does not give an account of all His doings. Listen, God is not accountable to you. And God is not accountable to me. We ought to be accountable to each other and accountable to our Father, but He does not owe us anything. He does not owe us an explanation for why He does what He does. God, why do you have me in this place in my life? He doesn't have to answer that. He's God. He's Creator. (laughs) And God is greater. I love this. Paul said in Romans 9, verse 20, Who are you, O man, when you answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for common use? God's made us the way He chose to make us. He is Creator and God is greater. And number three, God is Orator. God is Orator. Verse 14. Indeed, Elihu says, God speaks once or twice, and yet no one notices it. In a dream, a vision of the night when sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds. Then He opens the ears of man and seals their instruction that He may turn aside from His conduct and keep man from his pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over into Sheol. And we talked about this Sunday, that's one way that God speaks, is in dreams and visions. Elihu says, in dreams and in visions of the night. Why does God speak to us in dreams and in visions of the night? And I'm not going to get Freudian on you. Freud was, you know, had all kinds of dream theories and his were pretty whacked pretty out there but God does speak the Bible tells us in dreams and in visions of the night why? I think it's because that's one of the few times when we're actually quiet enough to hear Him it's one of the few times we're still enough you know lying there with our heads on our pillows Psalm 4 4 says tremble and do not sin meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still I don't know if you're like me. Usually, when the light goes out, when my head hits the pillow, I am out. But there are times, the light goes out, and I lay back, and I'm just wide awake. But what do you do in those times? Well, I go out and flip on the TV, because i got to keep myself going. You know, I gotta have... Do you ever just listen? You ever wake up in the middle of the night, 3 a.m., 4 a.m.? You're not sick? You don't have any problems, you just, all of a sudden you're awake. And there's something, someone, on your mind. I really think it's the Lord, most of the time. And I think it's because He, he, he rouses us in our sleep. says, hey, hey, shh, come here. Look, look. I want you to pray for so-and-so. It's three o'clock in the morning, Lord. Yeah, I know, but tomorrow you're going to be too busy. <laughs> so how about right now? Meditate upon your bed and be still. 
That's how God spoke to the wise men. This is not fairy tale stuff. Matthew chapter 2, verse 12. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. I would have loved to heard that conversation. You know, the three guys wake up. I had such a dream last night. You did too? Hey, I did too. What'd you guys dream? Well, Herod's going to get us. We've got to go. Yeah, that's what I heard. Go home by another way. Wow. God speaks by dreams. Peter said, quoting Joel, Acts 2.17, It shall be in the last days that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And I've been dreaming dreams lately, so I guess that tells me where I stand. (laughs) Elihu gives a great reason for God speaking in dreams and visions rather than, and hear me, rather than through somebody in the midst of a fellowship on a Sunday morning. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't do that. And I'm not saying the Lord doesn't speak to us when we're gathered as a larger body. But listen to this. Elihu says in verse 17 that he does this. He speaks in dreams and visions. That he may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. Why would God speak to you in a dream rather than... Oh, wait a minute. Something's coming in here. Hang on. Thus saith the Lord. I'll tell you why. Because the thus saith the Lord comments in many churches often is a source of pride. And so He will speak in dreams and visions. I'm not saying the Lord doesn't give a word to assembled believers or a fellowship. I'm just saying that we're not the best at handling it with humility. And so often God will speak quietly in dreams, in visions, to keep us back from that place of pride. Elihu also says, God speaks through pain, verse 19. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his soul favorite food. His flesh wastes away from sight. His bones, which were not seen, stick out. And then his soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. Then as we talked about on Sunday, pain has a purpose. There is a reason that we have the pain that we go through, the pain we go through. And it's not always punitive. Oftentimes, it's preventative. Like the hand of a child slapped away before it reaches the stove, sometimes our pain is to keep us from going where we don't really want to go. But we don't know any better. And so the Lord will allow pain to to shock us, to stop us, to keep us from heading down that wrong road. But pain also can be productive. Not just punitive, but preventative and often Productive. God will speak through pain. And James said in James 1 verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God, Elihu says this is how God speaks. God is, an, he is orator. Huh. So dreams, visions, and pain. Are there any other ways that God speaks? Absolutely. We've talked actually about many ways that God will speak. Just He'll speak through His Word. God will speak sometimes through other believers. Although if a believer comes to you and says, I think God has a Word for you, it's still your responsibility to test it with the Lord. God will also speak to you through, well, here's my favorite way. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us through His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. My favorite way God speaks is through Jesus. It's through Jesus. So we talked about Sunday also walking through the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and seeing Jesus everywhere. I love hearing the words of Jesus. I love framing things by Jesus. I love seeing life being about Jesus or pointing to Jesus or drawing us toward Jesus. Man, if that's where it's coming from, if it's about Him, I want to hear it. And Hebrews tells us God has spoken to us through His Son. Verse 23, if there is a messenger, the word angel is messenger, if there's a messenger as mediator for him, one out of a thousand, to remind a man what is right for him, then let him be gracious to him and say, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Number four, God is mediator. We talked through this also on Sunday. This messenger mediator, dispensing grace, paying the ransom, our kippur, our atonement, and it's Jesus that Elihu is talking about. Probably doesn't realize he is, but it's Jesus that is being described here. And as Jesus comes, pays our ransom, gives us grace, verse 25, let his flesh become fresher than in youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. And he will pray to God and he will accept him. That he may see his face with joy. He may restore his righteousness to man. That is, He will impute His righteousness. God gives us His righteousness. And by the way, real quick side note on this. It says He will pray to God and He will accept Him that He may see His face and restore His righteousness to man. And the wording in the Hebrew, what it literally means is, He will impute His righteousness and we will pray. It reads backwards, actually. In the English, what we see is, we'll pray and we get the righteousness. That's not how it works. God gives His righteousness and we can't stop thanking Him for it. I mention that because it's another example in the Scriptures of of the vast complexity and wonder of grace. You see, grace is so simple a child can get it, but it is so, so deep and so complex. And what's being described is God imputes His righteousness to us. Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus dies. Jesus becomes our kapoor, our atonement, our sacrifice, the propitiation of our sins, and all of that before a single one of us uttered a single prayer. Ransom first. Prayer comes in response. I was reading the other day and one man put it this way. He said, I repented to the Lord. I repented to the Lord and I had to go back and repent of my repentance. Because even our repentance can be arrogant. Oh, you should have heard my repentant prayer the other day. (sighs) It was good. God has to forgive me now because it was really good. (laughs) No, no. The atonement is paid. The ransom given. All we really can ever do is respond to what God has already done for us. And then, verse 27, He will sing to men and say, I have sinned and perverted what is right, and it is not proper for me. 
He has redeemed my soul from going to the pit, and my life shall see the light. Behold, God does all these, oftentimes with men, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be enlightened with the light of life. We talked about it. It's resurrection that God promises to pull us out of the pit and save our lives by the light of life who is Jesus Christ. John 8, 12. I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Verse 31. Elihu says, Pay attention, O Job. Speaking his name again. Listen to me. Uh, Keep silent and let me speak. Then if you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did not desire to justify Job. They desired to condemn Job. Elihu says, I want to justify you. I want this to be right. But he says, verse 33, If not, listen to me, keep silent, and I will teach you wisdom. Uh, Overconfidence there, Elihu, I will teach you wisdom. And yet, note this. This is interesting to me. We're going to stop here tonight. But I want you to see something that's missing. At the end of chapter 33, something is not here. That as we read through the book of Job, we would expect to be there. What's that? Job's response. He doesn't say anything. Elihu stops. Gives him opportunity. He says, listen, uh, speak. I desire to justify you. But if not, listen to me, keep silent, and I will teach you wisdom. And Job keeps silent. He doesn't say a word. Job is hanging on every word Elihu is speaking. He's not rebuking. He's not replying. He's not defending. He doesn't jump in. He doesn't object. He doesn't take umbrage to what Elihu has spoken thus far. Job is now doing the best thing that Job has done in the entire book. He's listening. He's quiet. And for six chapters, Elihu speaks. And Job is on the edge of his seat. Job is just paying attention. You could say one of the more significant moments in the entire book of Job was the last line of chapter 31, verse 40. The words of Job are ended. That's a good thing. That's right on. Because now that the words of Job are ended, Job is finally able to use what is most needed to hear God. His ears. Shut the mouth. Open the ears. I've said this to my children. God has given you one mouth, two ears. He wants you to listen more than He wants you to talk. Job is listening. Matthew 11.15 uh, Matthew 13.9 Matthew 13.43 Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Revelation 2 7.11.17.29 and 3.6.13 and 22 Jesus says, He who has an ear, even one ear. I like that. It's not let him him who has ears. Now Jesus said, just one ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How do I learn from God? Two simple words. Shut up. (laughs) Just stop talking. 
Job spends 29 chapters arguing, debating, carrying out a long-winded diatribes, self-defense. He's responding to Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad. And it's really typical of us. I've had a couple people say, man, 29 chapters of just non-stop talk. Talk, 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 talk. Why are you studying the entire book of Job? Because it's just like our lives. It's what we do. We argue and debate and discuss and, and get all into it. And it's not until Job settles down and shuts up that true wise counsel comes. I want to show you two quick passages and we're done. Psalm 131. Just go to the right. One book. To Psalm 131. I think as, as Elihu is, is framing his entire conversation with Job and saying, He is God. It's all about God. we got to look at God. As he's saying that, the thing that stood out to me most in these two chapters, and truly, I was going to do chapter 34, but I stopped because this message is loud and clear. Whether we're on the pillow late at night, being still and listening, or we're sitting quietly in times like these in Bible study, and we're truly listening, not, not just to Pastor Rick's teaching, but truly listening to the Spirit of God, to His Word. These are the times when wisdom comes. These are the times when the answers come. And by the way, that answer that had not been spoken before by Elihu to Job was, perhaps there's another reason for all this pain. Maybe it really doesn't have to do with you. Maybe it's God speaking and He has something to say. Psalm 131, verse 1. It's the shortest of all the psalms. I know there's a three-verse psalm over in Psalm 133. This one's slightly shorter. David wrote this in his old age because David, though he did something foolish as an older man, learned from it and didn't die an old fool, but died faithful. He wrote, O Lord, my heart is not proud nor my eyes haughty. Nor do I involve myself in great matters or things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. I've been taken back. I've shared this before, just having... Having David, having a two-year-old now, he'll be two this month, I've been taken back again to a place of holding a small child. And it's precious because the first thing that David wants to do when he wakes up from the nap is just be held. It's the best time of the day. <laughs> because he, he's just quiet and he nestles in and he'll sit on your lap sometimes for half an hour, 45 minutes. And that's the picture I get when I read this. Surely I've composed and quieted my soul. We all are like little David. We're, we're, as older David writes, we're like little David. We're, when we quiet ourselves before God, we, we sit there as if on His lap, leaning in quietly, just listening. And that's where wisdom comes. And that's where faithfulness is developed. And that's where we begin to hear I've shared before, there's, there's no shortcut to hearing God. There's no you know, strategy to it. 
There's no step-by-step process by which you can become a hearer of God. No, you've got to be quiet. And the more we have opportunity, the more we take times of stilling and quieting ourselves, I, I promise you, the more you're going to hear God. I have heard God the most in quiet. I never hear Him in clamor. In my busyness. It's in the times of busyness I come to the end of myself, I crash and I burn, and I realize i got to get quiet and get back to listening to the Lord. Go a little bit further to the right. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And I, I, I just want you to see this. Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Because David said it. And then old Solomon, again, an old man, shares something amazing. He, he says, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 1, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. And by the way, you had to. Because the southern steps of the temple, as you walked up to the temple, were different. Each step. Maybe a couple of short and a long, and then a short and a long, and then two longs, and then a short. And and why? So people would stumble? No. So you had to guard your steps as you entered the temple. So you had to enter the temple thoughtfully, quietly, paying attention. And so I believe that's what Solomon is referring to here. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know they are doing evil. What's the sacrifice of fools? Verse 2. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. You get this picture almost of a person charging up those temple steps. I've got issues with God. And I'm going to do, God, you're going to listen to what I have to say. And Solomon says, man, that is the sacrifice of a fool. No, guard your steps. Go quietly. He says, for God is in heaven. Elihu might say the same thing. God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for He takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. He's saying don't blurt. Verse 6, Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Just fear God. My friends, it's when the words of Job are ended, when Job stops arguing his case, that suddenly wisdom begins to come and truth begins to be spoken. Not by a perfect man, but certainly by a spiritual man. A man who I believe was sent as a forerunner to the gathering storm. And that's what we're going to talk about Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we just need to learn to be still. To listen rather than speak. And I have all people need to learn how to listen. And Father, I guess um, all I can ask 
at the close of this, I think, very valuable and important word that You've brought to us is that You would teach us to be still. That You would bring us into times of quiet. And Lord, teach us not to fear the silence and not to so fill up our lives that we never have time just to hear You. Slow us down, Father. While the world and information seems to be going faster and faster and faster, slow us down that we might hear You. God, thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.